Thank you, friends. That's a joy to be with you this morning and have the chance to share about missions and about what God's doing in Africa. And um, I, I love what I get to do. I oftentimes don't have my family with me, so there's a picture of, of them all there. And I think, I think the kids probably being in the first service are probably not in here in the second one. But um, we're, we're back in the States. Two of them are going off to college. So we've got a this is, in fact, our last Sunday together as a family, and then Caleb's off next uh, Friday to North Central, and we're excited for it. The poor kid, though, he has no clue what he's in, in line for. We went up to Minneapolis, and it was 75 and perfect, and he's like, yeah, I can handle this. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that boy's about to, you know, when you're in Africa a long time, your blood literally thins out, because we never have a cold, cold winter. And, uh, and you need that thick blood if you're in Minnesota. This boy's going to freeze his little tush off. He's going to suffer. He has no clue. So I, I stuck him in an uh, ice machine uh, thing at Sam's Club and said, hey, get in there. That's what it feels like. Well, stay there. Just stay there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we're, they're looking forward to that, and they travel around with us. We do have some prayer cards back there. I'd love it if you'd take one home, maybe one per family, because the first service just took everything. <laughs> There's a few back there, but maybe one per family, and um, take it home with us. I always tell people, please take it home, put it on your fridge or in your Bible, whichever one you open the most. Yeah. So if uh, that way we'll be covered and remembered, and you'll, you'll uh, hopefully, after you hear the stories and, and want to pray with us, it'll make a big difference. We also have an email sign-up sheet back there. And I'd love to get your email address um, and keep you updated over the next... We're trying to raise our funds and support and prayer support to go back for another four years. And um, it doesn't happen without individuals and churches who will stand with us, pray with us, and give to, to make that happen. So we appreciate that. Miriam and I grew up as missionary kids, and then we went back to East Africa shortly after we were married. And we spent the first... 10 or 15 years about uh, working in the Horn of Africa in Somalia, Djibouti, and in Eritrea. And uh, we just love what God's called us to do. More recently, we've moved to Kenya, and we have a little bit of a different focus there, but um, missions has, for us, always involved a ton of transition. But in the middle of it, the Lord's helped us and walked with us, and I got to tell you that I, I love my job. I love the fact that I get to live in Africa. I love it that Jesus called us to Africa, and um, I'm so glad to have that opportunity. This morning, I want to just talk with you for a few minutes about God's kingdom, the kingdom of God in missions, and what that means and how it relates. You know, Jesus spoke a lot about his kingdom, and if you think about it, we're part of something wonderful. The worship we had this, this morning, the fellowship we have together, the unity we have in the body, We're a part of something incredible, the kingdom. And in Matthew 6, he talks about that. He says to each of us, he says, don't worry about your food or your drink or your clothes. Don't worry about that stuff, which is very hard for us to do in materialistic America, isn't it? If we're true, you know, we we left all our old clothes for the last four years, everything we'd been using, we left it in Kenya. And we came back with literally like probably two, three changes each just till we could get to the store. And the last three weeks has been about rebuying everything we need for these bigger kids to go off to school. Mike could enter his freshman year. Katie and Caleb go off to college. And I tell you what, for three weeks it's been like this. Where are those clearance racks? Just focused, looking. It's hard in the middle of that to remember, seek first the kingdom. 
Don't worry, Jesus said about all that stuff. Seek first the kingdom, my kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's a different way of thinking. Would you pray with me this morning as we get started? Lord Jesus, I just thank you for the chance to be here and the chance to open up your word and, and look at what you're saying to us about your kingdom and about missions. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts to hear and respond, eyes to see what you want us to see, and that we would become the people of the kingdom as you want us to be. Lord, we pray as you taught us, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke 17, Jesus says, the kingdom of God cannot be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or there it is over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. In John 18, he tells us what his kingdom is not. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. In Matthew 20, he talks about this different kingdom, where rulers don't lord it over their people, or where officials don't flaunt their authority. But he showed us a kingdom where a leader among us is the servant. What a great church this is. So many servant leaders making this happen. We can, it's really incredible to come in and see what I know so many of you do. It's amazing. His kingdom does not originate with this world or does he seek to take over the world by social or political activism or by violent action? That's not Jesus' kingdom. He did not come to establish a religio-political theocracy, nor did he come to dominate the world in that way. If it were, Jesus said, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by these Jewish authorities. But now my kingdom, he said, is from another place. Now that does not mean that as believers were to be indifferent to God's demand for justice, for peace, for caring for the orphan and the widow, or even for stewardship for his creation. No, he wants kingdom people involved in all those areas. He wants you and I to be a part of it. And yet of his kingdom, he says, and of this world, he says, fear not, for I, my kingdom, I've overcome the world. Now, there are times, I'm sure, when we might struggle to find the faith to believe his statement. There are times where I wonder, Jesus, have you really overcome this world? And I want to share some of those stories with you. But it's because when we take a look at the world, you open up your newspapers, you turn on CNN, this world is a mess. It's a mess. We know all about Satan's kingdom because in John 10.10, 10, Jesus tells us exactly, he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And I've got to tell you, we've seen that all over the world, and Kenya has become a major battleground, a place of spiritual conflict. It's a conflict zone. We've seen the rise of Islamic terrorism. I know you've heard about it in the news. Um, you know about ISIS, you know about Al-Qaeda, you know about Boko Haram in Western Africa. In East Africa, we have Al-Shabaab. The International Christian Concern writes about this group, Al-Shabaab, who currently controls much of Somalia and is, an active, is active in several parts of Kenya, 
openly opposes Christianity. They enforce a strict form of Sharia law that calls for the execution of Muslims that leave Islam. Proponents of Sharia are also known to assassinate those who convert Muslims away from Islam. Now you can see the conflict between the church and her mission to draw people into the kingdom and the ideology of Islamic terrorists who want to prevent that at all costs. Two years ago, a Christian pastor named Abdi Welly, he's one of our very few Somali pastors, he's a wonderful man. He was gunned down in broad daylight in the streets of Garissa by these same fundamentalists. Maybe you've seen the news headlines of the Garissa University attacks where over 160 college students were ruthlessly and senselessly murdered. We've had multiple bomb attacks and grenade attacks. We've had people taken out of buses and brutally decapitated on the side of the road simply because they weren't the right kind of Muslim. You might remember from not too long ago the Westgate Mall attack in Nairobi. My sons and I missed that by two hours. I believe as you pray for us and take these prayer cards home, you make the difference in those situations as the Holy Spirit intervenes time and time again. But in the middle of all that darkness and all that desolation, all that destruction, Jesus comes as a bright light. He pushes back the darkness. He pushes back that devastation. And he says, I have come, in the same verse, I have come that you would have life and that would be full and abundant. And then it's Jesus that invites all into his kingdom. He welcomes everyone to repentance. He welcomes them to healing and to life. That's the Jesus that we serve. So this morning, I want to highlight just four quick aspects of the kingdom of God in missions. Number one, first of all, his kingdom is about people. It's about people. It's made up of people who are surrendered to his rule and to his lordship, his direction, his power. It's those of us who enter relationship with him through repentance and confession, and subsequently then we are able to live out love and obedience to Christ in our neighborhood, in our community. That's what the kingdom's made up of. People who follow the way, the truth, and the life, who is Jesus himself, these are the people of the kingdom of God. Everyone, Jesus said to Pilate, who is on the side of truth, listens to me. In Matthew 11, Jesus spoke of the greatness of John, John the Baptist, and yet he said, but those who are least in the kingdom are greater than he. In verse 12, he went on and said, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men or forceful people lay hold of it. What did he mean? Well, these forceful people are like people who I work with in Kenya, pastors and evangelists of missionaries that we help to raise up, to train, and to send out to reach the least reached tribes in the nation of Kenya and in the Horn of Africa. Tribes that are resistant to the gospel. People groups who are blinded by Islam who don't want to have anything to do with the church or Christianity or the message of the gospel. There are people like Anderson and Edith who, lived, who live abandoned to Jesus. They follow his call, 
to reach Somalis in the desolate and the dangerous areas, people who are willing to pay the cost. You see, Anderson and Edith know what it's like to give up certain comforts, certain creature comforts, some, certain cultural comforts that they enjoy so that they can be a part of another one, so that they can influence a different one. They learn to wear completely different clothes, enjoy different foods. They learn another language because that's what missions is about. You see, working with many of these kingdom people, we're able to engage those communities through what we like to call transformational development projects. Projects that can bring a change for those people. And so oftentimes we'll enter a certain community through drilling a borehole. Or maybe it might be better that we dig a hand dug well and we put in a pump so that the ladies who oftentimes have to walk 10, 20 kilometers every other day to, just to bring back water for their household, um, now they can have easier access to clean and safe water through the efforts of a borehole. We're also involved in constructing of tabernacles and churches all over the country as, um, as the need arises, as a, people, a group of people gathering get large enough. We, we construct them. And then we've established schools, sometimes ultimately strategically in places where there are unreached people, people who have no opportunity to hear the gospel. So like in Sombo, where you see this school, we have about three to 400 students who come from the Muslim, uh, Muslim tribes around, and they'll walk, some of them, five, 10 kilometers to get to school every day. And every day they have a chance to hear about Jesus. And over a period of 12 years, we believe that's going to make a difference, even though they're hard, even though they're resistant, even though they repel, repulse at the gospel. In time, those become the leaders who receive Christ and turn their communities toward him. My wife directs Eden Camps and Clubs Kenya, which Pastor was telling you about earlier that you helped so much with your M&M jars um, I don't know who won the boys or the girls, but I think ultimately Eden and Kenya were the winners, and uh, we appreciate your efforts. That makes the difference in what we're able to do. As she goes out to Kenya camp, um, children's camps and um, clubs in the schools and does camps, and she made a little video about what Eden really does, and so if you just take a couple minutes and watch this, it'll give you a chance to understand a little bit better what she does.
Thank you. I really love what my wife's doing, and um, it does take some um, uh, money and some finance, and if you would like to support that, please talk to her afterwards, because we would really um, love to get a few more partners as we're in the States this year that can help uh, make a difference for those kids going to camps and running the clubs, and um, we've got some forms back there that you can use to, to support that. But the, as I was saying, the reality is that, that the kingdom is about people, people who go, people who send, people who pay the cost of missions, cost of sending, um, and it's about ultimately the people that the kingdom reaches and invites into the kingdom. First of all, it's about the people. Secondly, there is persecution in the kingdom. Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Many years ago, as we prepared to go back to Eritrea, I was going from church to church and sharing about that, sharing our passion for missions. And um, after church, I was standing at the back one day, and a man came out of the service, and he came up to me and said, Kevin, what are you doing? You can't go to Eritrea Look at that country, it's full, of, it's full of war. He said, you know, it's too dangerous. Don't take your kids there. And um, he said, look at the, the picture on a map. He said, it's even shaped like a gun. <laughs> and uh, we, we came to see that that was true. That was a place of great suffering. There was, they were at war with Ethiopia to the south. And um, in certain aspects, there was, there was a lot of pain and turmoil in that country. But in the middle of all that, right in the middle of it, the church was growing. We'd have 3,000 people attend services, about four, three services we'd have on a weekend, um, and pack out this tent every service, and the worship would resound around the town as it would go out of that tent and miracles and people being delivered from demons and salvations and baptisms. In the middle of the war, people were being saved and coming to Jesus. It was powerful. And then one day in 2002, the government came and shut the doors of the church. If you can imagine coming and enjoying being a part of a worship service this week in church, free, and coming back next week, and there's a seal across the gate, a seal on the door that says, if you go in there, you go to jail. And every evangelical church across the country has been shut, and now our buildings lie empty. Our pastors, so many of them, are still in prison today. A lot of suffering. And there are many, many stories about the people of the kingdom who have suffered great persecution because they follow Jesus. Burhani was one of those guys. He was one of our Bible school students, and during the week he would be at the Bible school, and then on the weekends he would go down to the town of Ginda, and there he planted and pastored a growing church. One day the police came to his house. They arrested him, took him out in the bush, and they took a rope and tied it around his hands and hung him from a tree. And then for two days they beat the back of his legs trying to get him to recant and turn away from Jesus. I saw him the following Saturday in a house, and he was lame now from that beating. He couldn't walk. When I looked at him, his face was swollen. His 
bruises were brutal. And I felt such compassion in my heart. I said, honey, it's not fair. You've suffered so much for Jesus, and I've suffered nothing. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget the joy, the peace, and the forgiveness that came out of his eyes. And he said, no, no, Kevin. He said, I've been counted worthy of suffering for the name. Powerful people of the kingdom in the midst of persecution. Or Tesfit, another one of our students, was drafted into the military service to go and fight in the war, and he always had his Bible, his little tiny New Testament, in, in, in the shirt sleeve of his pocket, and he would open it up with his fellow soldiers all the time and be witnessing, and he was a powerful evangelist. Many people came to faith in Jesus as he shared his story and his testimony. But the commanders got tired of him witnessing all the time, and so they took him aside and said, you'll stop teaching about Jesus? And he said, oh, sir, I cannot stop. Jesus has done so much for me. In fact, let me tell you what he's done and can do for you. And the commander got angry, and they took him aside and took a wire cord and tied the backs of his arms to his feet, and then they stretch him until he's in agony in what they call a figure eight, and they left him laying there in the sun. His hand eventually swelled up and he got gangrene kind of in there and it burst through, this infection came out and he lost the use of his right hand. Story after story, powerful people who in the midst of their persecution refused to deny Jesus and tell their persecutors, no, Jesus died for me and today I'm willing, I'll die for him. Powerful. Our general superintendent, his name is Haile Naizgi. He's been imprisoned for 11 years, along with several other pastors and church leaders. He's one of my favorite African men and families in the whole world. Our families were so close. He's not had the privilege of seeing his children grow up. Their family has struggled to survive, and many of them have to live as refugees. Haile's family now has to live in Kampala. They can barely make ends meet. Sorry, Kampala is Uganda. Last year, he was able to sneak a letter out of the prison, and uh, he got it to his daughter to send to me, and it came in the post, and I just wanted to read a little bit of that to you because it reads just like a, an epistle from the New Testament. He said, Peace and joy from our Father and Jesus Christ to you. By the grace of our Lord Jesus, we are doing fine, Dr. Kuflu and Kidani and me and other fellow Christian prisoners. Your prayer helps us stand firmly and to glorify God in the midst of our trouble. As you follow through public media, many young Christians are resisting the devil and paying the price here in Eritrea. Isn't it amazing to find young Christians who are willing to follow our footsteps and ready to give their lives after all these terrible years? Praise be to Jesus. This is the outcome of persistent prayer of all the saints in the world. Please keep on praying. 
years ago as I was leaving Eritrea before Haile was arrested, he said to me one day, Kevin, ask our brothers and sisters to pray with us. Not that we would be, fe- not that we would be freed from this persecution, but that we would be faithful to stand beneath it and fearlessly proclaim Jesus as we should. Connect Church in Washington, Illinois, can I put that to, to you? Would you pray for our Eritrean brothers and sisters who suffer much to follow Jesus? For such as these is the kingdom of heaven. Because of these forceful men and women, the kingdom is advancing. I've come to see the people in the nation of Eritrea, not in the shape of a gun, but in the shape of a key. Because those Christian brothers and sisters become key to reaching the nations around them. In the middle of persecution, they can reach their Muslim tribes and tongues that don't know Jesus yet. And they're powerful as they go about it. Just as we, in Washington, Illinois, become key to reaching our neighbors in our neighborhoods. We're the people of the kingdom of God. There is persecution. But I'm thankful that in the midst of that persecution, there is power. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, who do the people say that I am? And they said, oh, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah. And then he said to his disciples, but who do you say I am? Who do you say? And it was Peter who had faith to stand up and say, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon. For this knowledge, this insight comes from heaven, not from humans. And he said, upon this truth, on this rock, on this fact that I am the Messiah, that I am the Savior of the world, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, there's no power of darkness that can put out its light. There's no persecution that can crush this body of believers. And then in the same context, in the same flow, he turns to Peter and he says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Have you ever thought about what that means? Jesus says to Peter and he says to you, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. If you were to take your key out right now and look at it, you're like me, you might have key to the car I'm driving. It's not my key in my car. I don't own it, but I have the key to it. I have authority to use it at this moment, and it brought me to church. It's going to take me back. It's powerful. Maybe the key to your car, you're driving for Uber, Uber, is it Uber, Uber, and making big money? I don't know. You see, your key is access to power. It might take you to your workplace. It might take you to your entertainment. Or maybe you have a key to your house. What's that represent to you? We're just borrowing a house right now, but it's a pretty expensive house. I think probably, I don't know, $150,000, $200,000, I would guess, something. It represents wealth, right? Maybe you have a key to a classroom that represents knowledge for students or it opens doors for people to come to the classroom or you open, open up a, a, you know, you have an apartment block that you own or, or in your workplace, you have an office that's 
for a, a doctor, a lawyer, a key represents a lot to us. And they become very important to us, don't they? Oh, I hate it when I misplace my keys. And yet Jesus says, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven with great power and authority. I think, church, we hardly realize what power and authority we have in the Spirit. So that when we get on our knees on a Tuesday night with other people and we begin to cry out to Jesus and say, oh Lord, would you save my neighbors? Would you save Muslims in Africa? Would you open the doors for Somalis and Sudanese to come to know Jesus? When you, you start opening the door and making the difference for people on the other side of the world. Missionaries sense the protection of the Spirit as people at home pray. You make a huge difference for us. Can I challenge you to take hold of the keys of the kingdom of heaven and understand what Jesus went on to say. The power that's involved Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And whatever you set free on this earth is set free in heaven. Friends, we have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. It is powerful. We have power to see our neighbors and to see nations freed from darkness and light penetrate. And with that, we have potential in the kingdom. There's great potential. We're going to see many transformed lives. If you think about it, this church is only two years old and look at the numbers of transformed lives right here. We're seeing that in Africa. We're going to see it more and more from every race, from every religion, from every region of our world. As we take hold of the keys, the potential is incredible. You see, the only way that people are brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way. In Romans 8, it's said so clearly, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, what does it say? You will be saved. You'll be saved. The basic premise of the gospel, that's the truth. And I want all the world to know it. That's the truth. Now in our part of the world, or much of our part of the world, the Muslims that we want to reach really, really struggle with this. You see, they deny that the prophet Isa al-Masih, Jesus, the anointed one, they deny that he ever died. For them, it's a historical you know, it's a historical fact that he did not die. And they argue and fight over this issue they will not accept. You see, for them, how could Allah, how could God allow for a holy prophet to die? This horrible crucified death. No, 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 they say. Allah could not allow can't happen. You see, they've got many true things about Jesus. They know that he was a great teacher, that he was a healer and a miracle worker, and that he was the holiest man to ever walk the earth. He's the only human to never sin. They believe all these things about Jesus, but that he died and he rose. No, no, it's impossible. 
You see, it's like Satan has blinded their eyes to the truth. And every time I see the veiled Islamic woman, my prayer is, oh God, would you open her eyes and her heart to see? It's exactly what 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. You see, they simply can't see it. Now, I know in the physical, it's impossible for us to go up to a Muslim lady and pull the veil off. You'd start a war. But in the spirit, I believe as we take hold of the keys, we can pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate their minds, that their hearts could be receptive, that they could come to see the truth. And yes, I understand, it's a huge war, it's a big fight. But through love and relationship and discussion, time after time, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would do that. One of the ways that that's been happening is that I like to share a story which illuminates who Jesus is and what he did. You see, in theological terms, we call it the doctrine of substitutional atonement. Think of uh, Pastor Dave being a striker for his soccer team and a substitute literally comes in. That's what Jesus did, is that he came onto the earth and he became our substitute and he atoned or he died and paid the cost for our sins. A Muslim can't understand how God would let a good man die for a bad man. It doesn't make any sense to them. So I like to share this story. It's a story about two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother. The older brother was a really good man in his community. Everybody loved him. He was respected. He shared his wealth and his wisdom with his neighbors, and he's just a good guy. The younger brother, he was a reprobate. He was an evil man. He spent his time in the bars. He was always drunk. He ran around with the prostitutes, probably dealing drugs. He is one of those kind of guys. One night, the younger brother goes to his favorite bar and he drinks a few too many too quickly and starts getting an argument with one of his neighbors. In his anger, as the discussion turned into a fight, he suddenly drew a knife as they stood up and he thrust it into the chest of his neighbor. He stood there with such anger glaring from his eyes in his drunken stupor until somehow he realized what he had done as he watched the life ebb from his neighbor's body. And in his horror, he dropped the body and the knife and he ran from the bar. He ran through the village and ran all the way back to his brother's house. He went inside, nobody was at home, he went to his brother's bedroom and opened up the closet and there in the closet he saw his brother's clothes and so he quickly stripped off the clothes that had been soiled by his neighbor's blood that was all over his pants and his shirt. He dropped them on the ground, put on his brother's shirt, buttoned it up, put on his brother's trousers and quickly ran out of the house. A few hours later his brother comes home. He walks in and he sees his younger brother's clothes soiled with blood on the ground and somehow he understood what had happened. And so he too takes off his shirt and picks up his younger brother's 
soiled clothes and puts it on his body. Picks up the same with his trousers and buttons up his younger brother's trousers and he goes into his own living room and he sits down on the sofa and he waits. And it's not very long until there's a knock at the door. He opens the door and the police are standing there. They look at the evidence all over the older brother. So, of course, the older brother is arrested. Eventually, he's convicted and sentenced. And finally, they execute him for the crime of murder. The younger brother has fled the village. And when he gets news of what's happened over time, he begins to feel guilty In time, he can't stand it anymore, so he runs back to the village. He goes to the judge's house. He knocks on the door, and he says, Oh, judge, there's been a horrible miscarriage of justice. He said, My older brother was a good man. He's not the one who murdered the man in that bar that day. He said, I'm the one. I'm the one that was a thief and a robber and a murderer. The judge wisely reaches up on his bookshelf and pulls down the book of the law, opens to the right page, and he looks at the younger brother and he says, Son, it says here that the punishment for the crime of murder is that the perpetrator will be hung by the neck until death. He said, Your brother paid the price for you. You are free. Go and do no more wrong. And I want to tell every Muslim friend, and I want to tell you here this morning, who have not yet come to believe it perhaps, that Jesus Christ is my older brother, and I'm the younger brother, and he came and paid a price for me on a cross that I deserved, that you deserve. Jesus Christ. And our prayer is that the veils will come off, that Muslim minds will come to see who Jesus is and what he is. Oh, there's great potential in the kingdom as our neighbors and as the nations come to faith in Jesus. There's potential for your life to be transformed, for your neighbor to understand the truth, maybe for your coworker to believe for Muslims around the world to put their faith in Jesus. If we'll take hold of the keys of the kingdom, friends, and if we'll utilize them and step out in faith and pray, intercede, and give, and go to our neighbors and the nations like we never have before, the potential is limitless. I want to close this morning by this one thought. Jesus is not only the older brother. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We serve a risen Savior who's been victorious over everything that we face in this earth. What a wonderful Savior He is. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me for just a moment? I'd like to pray for you. If you're here today and you've perhaps never put your faith in Jesus, I want to tell you today is the day. Today is the day that you can confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior and repent. I believe your transformed life can start today.
Lord Jesus, I look out across this great congregation and the work that you're doing in men and women, boys and girls in this community, through this church, and I praise your name, Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing. Lord, if there's anyone here who's not yet received you, I pray that today they would step out in faith. I pray that this would be the day when they draw close to you and they receive the gift that you've given to them. And Lord, for others who at times have gotten lazy about using the keys of the kingdom, would you give them faith to believe that they make a difference in Africa? They make a difference in nations across the seas and they make a difference for their neighbor as they intercede and as they pray and as they call out to you. Lord, would you raise up pillars in this church who would have faith to believe you and walk with you? Would you anoint them in power as they take hold of the keys of the kingdom? Lord, I thank you for what you're doing here. I pray that you would receive all the glory. I pray that you would use your people this week for great things in Jesus' name. And we'll give you all the glory and the praise in your name. Amen.